Hebrews chapter 10, reading in verse, beginning in verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. As the pastor mentioned some weeks ago, I brought a message to the men in jail on these verses in Hebrews 10. He being with me and impressed with the power and the glory of the truths contained in that passage, he asked me to bring that message again to our church. I began to wrestle immediately with how that may be done, given the two very different contexts and very different audiences. Hebrews, as you know, is so rich and the doctrines run in such deep veins, as it were, that we might easily spend months getting through the verses over which we just skimmed in the jail. What's more, the jail context demands that a preacher refine his statements thoroughly to remove all elaborate speaking, all cumbersome words and Bible college terms. Great considerations must be delivered in that place very directly and simple truths repeated often in order to be more impactful and we hope by grace more productive. But how does one bring a gospel jail sermon to an educated church body without insulting the intelligence or irritating the expectations for more lengthy discussion. Intellectual sensibilities can be a cumbersome and haughty thing, after all. I am not suggesting that our way of speaking, as well as the content of our speaking, cannot and should not be changed according to time and place. As the saying goes, men of greater appetites require different cuts of meat. But what I am suggesting is that preachers are prone to think too much of ourselves and too little of the Word of God in our speaking. Too much of the approval of men and too little of the approval of Christ. But I think that the approval of vain Christians and dying sinners, what is that if nobody goes away any better for it in their soul? My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, said Paul, 1 Corinthians 2 and 4, but in demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power. I didn't come to you sounding like a Bible commentary, in other words, says Paul, but with direct words and the power of real conviction. And all I can say is, oh God, for more demonstration of the power of God in pulpits today. This very day in this place, and perhaps listening by way of the recording, there are Christians who are sleeping the sleep of carelessness, no longer bothered by their sins, or Christians who are in a wilderness of doubt and unrest, longing to find peace in the Christian path, some measure of reassurance under their burdens of guilt or confusion, or Christians who have been worn down by battle and misshapen by hurt, living in an attitude of defeat because of frustrated expectations, perhaps unrealistic expectations, but hurt still. These are plain facts. And it is a plain fact that this very day there are those within the sound of my voice that are lost. They are going to die. This is a plain fact. When we consider all of these things, what a world of need. Is there no medicine for such sad conditions? But there is. It's the story of the mission and victory of Christ. The old, old story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and His glory. Of Jesus and His love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child. For I am weak, weary, and helpless, and defiled. Tell me the story slowly. That I may take it in. That wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. And tell me the story often. For I forget. So soon. The early dew of morning. Has passed away. At noon. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always if you would really be in any time of trouble a comforter 
to me. Tell me the same old story. When you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Yes, and when that world glory shall dawn upon my soul, tell me the old, old story. Yes, sir. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. Today, I would share that gospel story with you again. Very short. Very simple. Because it's what you need. It makes no difference where you are in your walk with Christ. Or if you even have a walk with Christ. It makes no difference what age you are or how much education you may or may not have. It makes no difference what burdens you carry, what guilt you bear, what fears you have, what desires you nurture, what you know or what you think you know. You will never plumb the depths of this stupendous story and never be more than a spiritual imbecile until you have really tried to plumb its depths. This is what we need. We need to draw up to the great gospel heart and be warm through and through. I speak today on no higher plane than if I were still speaking in jail. I speak today as though you are hearing this report for the first time. If you have not heard it, you may hear it today truly for the first time, and I pray it is so. If you have heard this report, and to you it's an old friend, may hearing it again renew your affection and rekindle your admiration, drawing out your heart to Christ, and stirring up your courage and your commitment to stay in the gospel way, to cast your cares upon Christ, to be a Gideon, to pick up the pace to go to heaven. There is a world of misunderstanding and misinformation. And you can read that lies, if you will, about Christ's work and the nature and the amount of his success. There is an awful lot of talk about Jesus in our land for there to be so few signs of sincere Christianity. And much of that is true today, actually, because of men's love for eisegesis. What in the world is eisegesis? Some of you are Greek students and you will know by the prefix in that word. It is the opposite of exegesis. Eisegesis, very simply for you young folk and for those that may not know, is the process of putting into a thing your notions when they are not there. It is inserting an idea. And its opposite is exegesis in which we take 
from a text what is honestly found there. Eisegesis is to blame for so very much of the false Christianity. And why not? Why not? It's so convenient. Because with eisegesis, we can use the Bible as our sacred book, as our religious text, so that we can say we are Christians and we can promise ourselves that God will surely take us to heaven and yet still be able to believe and teach and practice the things that we prefer. I often refer to the Christ that this awful method has produced as the Jesus, Because if the Jesus that we find in Scripture won't fit with the religion that we need God to accept, well, then just put another Jesus in there. If we read a book like Jude and find out that those that were, there are those that were ordained to damnation, we're going to need to read into that something more convenient. If we find the, the prophet's question, is evil in the city and, and it's not from God, we're going to have to read into that something else. If we find that there are those that were foreordained, through the, the power of the Spirit of God unto life from before the foundation of the world. And there are those in the performance of God's miracles as He walked this earth. Those that He left behind having every opportunity, humanly speaking, to save them. We are going to have to read into those passages of Jesus that is more palatable. I said Jesus helps us to do that. But now listen to Luke chapter 9. And it came to pass, as Jesus was alone praying, His disciples were with Him, and He asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? Well, they had various answers. But He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter said, The Christ of God. The Christos. But what is that? What is that but an anointed one? A specially chosen one. This is Jesus. The anointed one. The appointed one. And he's appointed by God. Acts 2 and 36. God hath made the same Jesus both Lord and Christ. You young people, listen to me. God hath made that Jesus both Lord and Christ, but specially chosen to what? And what about this critical question? Did he succeed? Look at verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. It's an important question. Did he succeed? But it's important for you to know that the answer to that question cannot be separated from this question. Did he obey? Christ can answer that for himself. He said, I came to do thy will, O God. What an example of obedience. He entered into this world with one thing in his mind to do God's will. 
there is a test for your Christianity. And however much it might offend them, and it has those of our neighbors and those of our fellow citizens. And however much it might offend them, and it has our family members. Here is a test for your Christianity. Do you have this focus to obey God? Does your practice match your profession? If God's Word is His revealed will to us, and it is, are you here to do His will? Realize that Jesus was never less committed to the Father than the Father was committed to Him. And yet, we dare to expect the Lord to devote Himself to us when we can never be bothered to be devoted to Him. I am not here to make selfish men fat, happy, and wealthy and make all their dreams come true, says Christ. I will forever bless the Lord that the Father's will for Christ involved great mercy for me. But whatever other ideas the modern church has about why Jesus came to earth, it was first and foremost to do the will of the Father because it was the will of the Father. If that makes us feel less special, it should. So what was the will of the Father for Christ? Well, He tells us, John 6, All that the Father hath given me, giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. In a word, this was the mission of Christ. To perform the will of God which was to save a people for the glory of His name. Verse 10, by the which will. <laughs> by the which will. This is where salvation begins. And because of that, this is why salvation happens. Can I say that again? This is where salvation begins and only because of that, this is why salvation happens. It was not the will of God to make an attempt. It wasn't the will of God to make a suggestion. It was the will of God to actually save His people. And what God wants to do, what He intends to do, He does do. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. Salvation was never man's idea. Even if it was somehow man's idea, he completely lacks the power or the knowledge to make it happen. But it wasn't God's afterthought either. As if God had to scramble to figure out what to do after man messed up in the Garden of Eden. Modern religion wants you to believe that salvation is just a super generous suggestion from an awesome God who's trying to rescue a world that has unfortunately gotten all messed up. And you know, it's just too bad. Because Jesus never wanted it that way. But wait, 
There's a reaction rescue plan. Everything's been set up for you, but the magic happens when you make a move toward Christ. And without that, nothing will ever happen. You can think of it like a prepaid salvation plan. But your salvation requires that you redeem the card. What an arrogant and stupid idea. Salvation began in the purposes of God before the world ever was. Deuteronomy 7 and 6. Isaiah 43, 1 and 4. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Romans 9 and 11. To what other text would you like me to turn? To demonstrate the truth of what Hebrews and verse 10 says. By the which will. In a real sense, it began and ended there. Because in His plan were His purpose to provide the sacrifice required to cover my sins and the grace I need to repent of my sins and receive Christ's forgiveness. What sort of a God do you take Him for anyway? What sort of God would not have every part of such an important thing worked out before things ever start. You can worship the modern loser of a Jesus if you want to. I'll have no part with you. What sort of a God would not have these things ordered before it ever started? If God, if even God was left reacting to man's bad choices in the Garden of Eden, and even if He can't manage to save as many people as he supposedly wants to. Poor, pathetic Savior. How much better do you think you would do with saving people or saving yourself? No, no. It's by that will, the will of a sovereign potentate, yes. that his people are sanctified, says Hebrews. It just means to set apart. To set apart. From death to life. From guilt to freedom. <laughs> not by anything in us. Not by anything at all. Until first by the will of God. If He hadn't wanted it and He hadn't worked it out, it would have never happened. Right. That's about as plain and simple as it can be. How is his plan worked out? It's right there in verse 10. And it's in verse 14. By the which will we are set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Through the body of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine such a plan? <laughs> Delivered from death by death, Hebrews 2. Perfected by the messy suffering and bleeding of Christ. Can you just imagine it? And for whom? Once, he said, for all. <laughs> For all, oh yes, for all, 
for all of the we about whom he is speaking. For the many of Hebrews 9 and 28 and chapter 3 and verse 1. For the brethren of Hebrews chapter 2, etc., etc., etc. Not everybody, just them. And all the ones that Ephesians says are picked out by God to receive eternal life. But now listen, why am I making that point? To discourage you? Some of you young people have raised this question. Why do we make that point? To discourage you from coming? Because maybe maybe we may not be in the special group that are saved. Not at all. On the contrary, to encourage you to come with the understanding that this salvation isn't watered down, pathetic, and only possibly successful. All, 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 and everyone He ever personally calls are certainly sanctified through the work of Christ. Once he said, for all. Hebrews isn't teaching that Jesus intended to or ever will save every person in history. No, but every single person that hears his call in the gospel and that comes to this Christ, forsaking their sin and casting themselves on him in faith, even weak, tiny things, is covered, is washed, is delivered, is sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once for all and every one of these. Once for all. His sacrificial power is targeted power. (laughs) The salvation He purchased is most certainly filled up with all the strength and all the payment required to really and truly save everyone He calls. So is He calling you? Is He calling you, Mr. Giacomo? John 10 tells me He calls His sheep by name. Have you heard his call? Once he gave himself for all. Once he did it. Once for all that hear his call. And it was once because once was enough. Chapter 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became a, became a, became us try not to preach there for a few months for such an high priest became us who is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners get your head and heart around that phrase separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once. 
when he offered up himself. He didn't fail in his mission. Some preachers talk about a Jesus that's begging for friends. A Jesus that never manages to rescue all the poor folks he wants to save. Nonsense! He didn't come to play a game of cosmic craps, roll the dice on the sidewalk of history and hope to win some souls. There are no lines for filling the blank on the palms of God's hands. He said, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. I have graven thee, thee, thee. There are names there, people there. He didn't scribble Christmas wishes on his hands. He carved the names of all that he perfected through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. That's personal. That's permanent. And that's enough. He opens this up more in verse 11. If there... And every priest, he said, standeth daily. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering. Sometimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. (laughs) Yes, sir. Now you see how after the Bible says a word about the Christ that would be the sacrifice. And goes on to put you on notice that he was in fact made the sacrifice. Then it is as if the Holy Spirit takes the two great parts in his hands to show us, to show us the comparison, the pictures and the person. And first he lifts up hundreds of years worth of Jewish practice, practice that was still going on while Jesus was being crucified. But God had ordered those sacrifices to be done. They were perfect for just what they were intended to do, which was to represent the penalty for sin and to picture the one great sacrifice required to actually cover sin. But that is all they could ever do. That is all any religious act can ever do, even good and proper religious acts. Centuries of religious labor, serious devotion, and oceans of blood. But not one sin was actually covered by all of that. Verse 11, they could never take away sin. Never, ever, ever, verse 4, in case you don't get that. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. Do you think that if all, do you imagine that if all of that could never take away sins for the Jews in that day, that maybe your baptism, maybe your crocodile tears, Maybe your good deeds. Maybe your good books. Maybe your pastor's promise that you are saved. Your hard work to think right and do right and feel right will ever, ever, ever take away your sin. It won't happen. No, not possible. It won't happen. 
if not centuries of good deeds and animal sacrifice, then certainly nothing you can offer. Nothing. Oh, hallelujah. But this man. Yes, sir. This But this man. You see, on the one hand, he holds up centuries of Jewish sacrifice. Literally, rivers of blood. But on the other hand, this man. Not you. Not me. Not some priest or preacher. Godly mother or father. This man. Which man? The Christ man. All man. Real man. It must be so. For mankind, he must be man's kind in the body prepared for him for just this special purpose. Hebrews 10 and 5, he made just one sacrifice. What was it? Him. Him. What a story. What a story. You young scholars, listen to me. You'll have to get up. You'll have to get up early to surprise me with a new skeptical thought. Could it have been different? Of course it could have. God may have arranged this salvation process in any number of ways. Why did God, did breaking God's law require the shedding of blood? I don't know. Why did God arrange it so that His Son would need to come as a man in order to pay the penalty that men owe? Couldn't He have arranged some other form of payment or some other penalty? Could it have been a different way? Sure. But it wasn't. And that's all you need to know. Don't go to hell waiting for the answer to why God arranged it like He did. Just go to heaven accepting that it is the way it is. Where's the international holiday that celebrates the cross rather than the cradle? I say you may as well try to tell all the triumphs of Alexander the Great by a description of his baby shoes. How can men tolerate a cute little baby and not a crucified Savior? I'll tell you why. Because it's hard to overlook sin when you're looking over the cross. Oh yes. Oh yes. On this cross, this man offered a sacrifice. 
for sin. But sacrifice himself. And praise God, it wasn't a test run. It wasn't a practice session. It didn't come out of production missing any pieces. His one sacrifice covered every sin He ever intended to cover. And it did it forever. We live in an expiring world. I hope you know that. Time itself is set to run out of date. Can you imagine it? Everything in your existence, everything except your soul and the record of your behavior has an expiration date. And that is my concern. The record of my behavior, oh God, Oh God, after this morning's message, the record of my behavior. What if Jesus was only good for as long as you lived? What if his payment for my sin only lasted a few thousand years? What if it lasted for millions? At last, it would end though. But long before God had forgotten about my life, what then? Here is a salvation worthy of God. One man, one sacrifice forever. How is this not good news for terrible sinners like me? My sin can't go too deep for him to reach. Were too long for him to cover. If he ever counted me covered by the blood of his cross, nothing and no one, not even my own treacherous heart, thank God, can roll back the pardon. Or if you prefer the way Acts 5 and 39 puts it, if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. You cannot overthrow it. Just imagine this, and we'll close. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now just imagine. Imagine that Christ lived such a sacrificial life and crowned it all with the amazing sacrificial death. He died on the cross only to have it all rejected by the Father. It is the Father's house after all. Have we forgotten John 14 and 2? Heaven is in the Father's house. It's the Father's house. And unlike me, I'm ashamed to say, Christ would never bring people to His Father's house on terms that were not acceptable to the Father. Christ dying was the substitution part of what was required to deliver my soul from hell. But the Father must add to that His 
full agreement with the sacrifice. And he did. And he did. Thanks be to God. Jesus sat down on the right hand of God. Those words are the sweet sigh of everlasting peace. Payment was accepted. That singular fact without which no event that went before it, however compassionate and amazing, however full of passion and kind intentions would ever serve to save a single soul. Christ's payment was accepted by the Father. For that reason, for that reason, I can hope to be accepted by the Father. Accepted in Christ for His sake. Behold, Behold the mission and victory of Christ. This is an old, old story. This is a plain and simple gospel message today. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Behold the plain, unadorned nail of the gospel. May God pin your heart to his chariot with this plain thing. Come again. Come for the first time. Come and take this great Christ by faith. And beg the privilege to be covered by His blood. Come weary sinner, in whose breast a thousand thoughts are fall. Come with your guilt and fear oppressed. Make this last resolve. I'll go to Jesus. Though my sin hath like a mountain rose, I know his course. I'll enter in whatever may oppose. May God grant you that today. Stand with me and sing 433.
Jesus, though my sin hath like a mountain rose, I know his courts I'll enter in, whatever may oppose. I'll prostrate lie before his throne, and then my guilt confess. I'll tell him I'm a wretch undone without his sovereign grace. I'll to the gracious King approach who scepter pardon gives. Perhaps he may command my touch, and then the suppliant lives. Perhaps he will admit my plea, perhaps will hear my prayer. But if I perish, I will pray to perish only there. I can but perish if I go. I am resolved to try. For if I stay away, I know I must forever die.